Nashville Anthems, a podcast where we peel back the layers of the phenomenon that is 80s and 90s country music by taking deep dives into the songs played on satellite radio's 80s and 90s country station. I'm your host, Melton McMainerberry, and I want to thank Dusty Lane for contributing today's theme music. Life's never been better than this, folks. Today's episode must be a dream that is real, because eight episodes into this project, we are tackling a band that I can't get enough of. That is Diamond Rio, and their 1996 song, That's What I Get, For Loving You. As always, I'll start by giving credit where credit is due. This song was written by Kent Blazy, who coincidentally co-wrote our last selection, Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up and Neil Thrasher. It was released on Diamond Rio's 1996 album 4, that's Roman numeral IV for keeping score at home. And I mentioned that I'm a big fan of Diamond Rio, and it's true. Diamond Rio is certainly my favorite country band, and may be my favorite country artist, period. I just love their sound and how skillfully they play and harmonize. So I have heard every Diamond Rio album many times, including their hard-to-find latest one, I Made It, which is a real gem if you're able to find it. But my absolute favorite Diamond Rio album happens to be Diamond Rio 4, and this song is a big reason for that. In fact, it's been hard while prepping this episode to separate in my head and in my ear. That's what I get for loving you from the rest of this album. The song epitomizes the bright, fun sound of the album as a whole, and in particular, as track 3 on the album, it marks the last leg of one of the best 1-2-3 punches to open an album that I have ever heard in any genre, and that would be Holden, Walking Away, and then That's What I Get for Loving You. They're not only three fine songs, but they feel of a piece, like they belong together stylistically. We'll get to more of that style here in just a moment. And finally, the song and the album were produced by longtime Diamond Rio producers Tim Dubois, Monty Powell, and Mike Clute. The whole band also gets a producing credit on this one. So as usual, let's tackle this song by looking at some key features that make it what it is. A spoiler alert, almost everything that we're going to go into here can be said about Diamond Rio's broader catalog, but that fact alone is interesting. So more on that to come. But the first key feature I'd like to get to is the brightness of Diamond Rio's sound on this song. The song has an overall feel of pep, of upbeat energy, like a singer has eyes wide open, eyebrows raised, and a big grin on his face. I think a lot of that bright feel comes from two instruments that do a lot of dancing in the upper register and add little specks of bright tones that cut through a pretty thick instrumental arrangement. Those two instruments are Dan Truman's piano and Gene Johnson's mandolin. Two instruments you don't really think of as belonging to the same ensemble, especially with Dan Truman's particular playing style, which we'll get to in a bit, but it works in this band. There was a time I walked outside the lines when the world plays too rough, I can find a Either of those instruments would brighten the sound up, but together they take that brightness to a definitive level for this song and for this band. Another way this song is extra bright can be seen in the contrast between its verses and its choruses. Now you may remember that we talked about this in the rodeo episode because Rodeo's choruses amped up the intensity Nirvana style. We talked about that. That happens here, too, as the song gets fuller and more energetic in the choruses. But where Rodeo, and for that matter Nirvana, get frantic in the choruses, that's what I get for Loving You amps up the brightness. In some specific ways that that happens, the most drastic thing that happens between verse and chorus is that it changes key. Now, except for the brief switch to major in The Devil Went Down to Georgia, this is the first 
fully committed key change we've encountered. Each verse of How Can I Help You Say Goodbye, if you remember, we talked about started with a false key change because the verse started on that odd chord, that two major chord, but they faked us out. They weren't really key changes. And I have to say, I do not associate key changes with country music. So maybe this one is an anomaly, but we'll keep our ears open as we continue this project. But at any rate, this song certainly does unambiguously change keys back and forth every time it switches from verse to chorus and vice versa. The verses are in D major, and the chorus is one step up in E major. That whole step increase is a classic way to brighten a song up. It's often done on the last chorus of a pop song for that reason, but in this case, it has the effect of amping up the brightness of each chorus and kind of injecting a little more mojo into the happy celebration that this song is. Life's never been better than this. That's what I get. And it's interesting, because just for kicks, I played and sang the first verse and chorus of this song on my own, on piano, without doing the key changes, and honestly, it sounded just fine. The song could have stayed in D the whole time, and I don't think anyone would have thought anything of it. But Domin Rio goes the extra mile here and gives us that nice touch of bumping up a whole step just for the fun of it. It makes the song harder to play. Honestly, your fingers don't go where they naturally want to go during that transition when you do that key change. So kudos to them for doing it anyway. And I have to say, the transition is really smooth too. It's done so seamlessly that I'm going to bet most people don't realize it even happens. It's not the big dramatic key change like normally happens when you take a song up a step. The transition back to the lower key when it switches back to the verses from the chorus, uh, in my opinion, is even better. It's smoother even than the one that shifts that key up. Now, I am tempted to go into all the music theory about why these transitions sound so seamless, but I want to stay true to our purpose here of investigating this song as part of a larger musical phenomenon, and I think going into the theory would pull us a little bit away from that. I can't resist the temptation at least to play it, though. So this is the transition from verse to chorus. It goes C, and more on that chord in a moment, because that's an odd chord, G, which is a four chord, because the verses are in D, A suspended, more on that later, A, B, that's the money chord, that's the pivot chord, to the E, which is now the new key. So again, that C, G, A suspended, A, And I let you pick out the chorus to verse transition yourself, but it turns a four chord into a five chord without you even realizing it's happening. It's pretty awesome. So all this makes you wonder, makes me wonder if that was part of the song as Kent Blazy and Neil Thrasher wrote it, or if that's something Diamond Rio came up with for whatever reason, maybe to get the vocals in a better contrasting range between verse and chorus, just to make the song more interesting to play. Who knows? But speaking of... The vocal range between the verses and choruses are quite a bit different, and that key change does pull them further apart still. Now, on the verses, lead singer Marty Rowe is in a comfortable male range. He's singing notes right around middle C, be this range around here. Pretty easy for most men to sing that. On the choruses, the lowest melody note is the B below middle C, but the highest note is a high G sharp, right in that same range that we find ourselves talking about a lot on Nashville anthems. It's 
around Garth Brooks's high G and Travis Tritt's high A that we talked about. It's also the same note as Patty Loveless's highest note in How Can I Help You Say Goodbye. So Marty Rowe jumps up almost a full octave, essentially, when the song switches to the chorus. That again just amps up the energy level. His voice in that register has a brighter sound and just an overall more energetic sound than he sang in that lower register in the verses. When the world plays too rough, I can find a healing touch. That's what I get from loving you. But Marty Rowe isn't the only singer in these choruses. And the other and maybe most obvious thing that happens when we switch from verse to chorus in this song is that we go from a solo vocal in the verses to full three-part harmony in the choruses as bassists Dana Williams and mandolin player Gene Johnson joined Marty Rowe on vocals. Gene Johnson's tenor vocals especially contribute immensely to the brighter chorus the song has. One, the timbre of his voice is just naturally thin, bright, and bluegrassy. It's fantastic, his vocal timbre that he brings to this song and to this group. Two, he's just way up in the stratosphere. Marty Rowe, as we said, is already singing really high for a man. I mean, it's definitely outside of my range. And Gene Johnson is harmonizing above that even. So he is just wailing up there. And because he has that bluegrassy timbre, it's not really a soulful belting of the high notes, a la Travis Tritt, but much more sing-songy, a tone that pierces through the cluster of tones that this song has, similar to how his mandolin does. Another thing that happens when the chorus kicks in is that Dan Truman's organ starts. So this is a more subtle thing, but a nice touch. It's something that fills out the chorus in a way that doesn't overpower, but makes it sound different. And I have to say, when I was listening to this song over and over, trying to pick up on all these little things, I couldn't help remarking on something that had never hit me before. And that's how similar this song sounds, at least in the chorus, to what I reckon most would agree is Diamond Rio's signature song, their first big hit, Meet in the Middle. If you know that song, maybe you can hear what I'm talking about. The feeling became so strong for me on that, that when I was listening to That's What I Get For Loving You and it would get to the chorus... I couldn't resist starting to sing uh, in my head, because I cannot sing in Marty Rose's vocal range. I'd start walking your way whenever the chorus, uh, That's What I Get for Loving You, would start. So what am I hearing there? Well, the chorus of Meet in the Middle is not in a different key from the verses like the chorus of That's What I Get for Loving You is, but it is in the key of E, which is the same key as the chorus of That's What I Get for Loving You. And you can really hear that in Marty Rowe's vocals because he is right there in that same range in both songs, singing those same notes, especially that high G sharp that we talked about is prominent. I'd start walking your way You know, that really must be the sweet spot for him. So probably not a coincidence that these choruses are in the same key and in that same vocal range. The vocal harmony and the organ kicking in are also hallmarks of the chorus of Meet in the Middle, just like they are for That's What I Get for Loving You. So it does feel like this may be a pattern or, dare I say, a formula for Diamond Rio that they know works. But more on that in a bit. That's something I'd like to explore more deeply. 
So another big thing that contributes to the brightness of this song is the song's just overall happy tone. I mean, lyrically, the song is a celebration of life, love, and how it all works in the relationship that this singer finds himself in. It's a celebration of when it all comes together. Everything clicks, you're hitting on all eight cylinders. Insert your favorite cliche about good times here. We see that throughout the lyrics of the song. Uh, A few examples would be, Heaven's right here in my hand, essentially calling everything that the singer inhabits and owns as heavenly. A dream that is real is a nice line. Kind of sounds like that movie High Fidelity, which dealt with Rob Gordon's struggle to reconcile the dreams of his perpetual youth with the reality right in front of him. The narrator here is saying, like, no way, man. Reality is the dream. This is as good as it gets, and it's great. He even says that in one of the verses. He says, life's never been better than this. There's the smile and kiss every morning. It's all there. Everything but the picket fence, but that's pretty much there by implication. This is living, and it don't get no better than this. That is the lyrical message of the song. And if you're waiting for the punchline, the twist where you find that there was a dark cloud behind this silver lining all along, you'll just have to keep waiting because like so many songs we've examined before, it's not there. This is Rodeo's unapologetic celebration of rodeo life, regardless of what it means for home life. This is How Can I Help You Say Goodbye's wink-free maternal comfort or Seminole Wind's straightforward love affair with South and Central Florida. Or I'm going to be somebody's idealistic American dream. And unlike God Bless Texas, there doesn't seem to be anything tongue-in-cheek about it. So we're very much seeing this emerge as a common thread. This face value is what it is treatment of the subject matter without the 90s cynicism or irony you might expect. But in addition to the lyrics, another reason this song just sounds happy is that in contrast to some of the bluesier songs we've talked about, like Rodeo and Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up, and God Bless Texas too for that matter, I don't think we talked about it that much in that particular episode. And unlike The Devil Went Down to Georgia, which was in a minor key, this song has a very clean major tonality. That really comes from three things. The thirds of the chords are clearly heard on this song. Remember we talked about in the rodeo episode open chords where the third was either not played at all or at least hard to pick up and how that gave the song a feeling of mystery. You really weren't sure where the tonality was. Well, there's none of that here. Even though the song is in two different keys, those keys are clearly major all the time because those thirds of the chords, these major thirds, aren't trying to hide that fact. So, for example, the last couple of choruses start with the melody note belting out that high G sharp that we talked about in the vocal. And that's the third, the major third of the key of E that the chorus is in. And that's just the melody, but really the fact that the chorus is in three-part harmony the whole time and very clear three-part harmony, you can hear all three voices pretty much equally. In fact, it can be hard to pick the melody out of the cluster of vocals sometimes, but because the vocals are in three-part harmony, you're always hearing the full triad of each chord, one, three, and five, in some order. So that third is always in there, and you're left with no ambiguity about whether the song is in a major or minor key, like there was in Rodeo. In fact, all the chords in this song, outside the bridge, are major chords, so a very major heavy song. Related to that, the instruments are often suspending those thirds. That just means instead of the major third, you play half a step up, which is takes the note to the fourth degree. So like you're suspending it temporarily up in the air, a little higher than it normally is. Then you normally resolve it by dropping back down to the major third and just forming a traditional triad again. 
They do that a lot on this song, Diamond Rio does, and it's often when the five chord is being played, which is a common chord to suspend. In the verses, that's an A chord suspended. It sounds like this, then it resolves. There's also a bonus chord in the verses that kind of wakes the song up and gives it those good vibes. That's an unexpected 7 chord, 7 major. In the key of D, that's a C major chord, which is out of key for the key of D. It occurs several times, but one place you hear it is on that line, Life's never been better than this. That word never is the 7 major. And just for good measure, this in that line is a suspended 5 chord. Life's never been better than this. Finally, the song uses a fair number of added seconds to chords. A good place to listen for this is in Jimmy O'Lander's lead guitar part going into each verse. It sounds like this. That's an A chord with a B note in it. That B note being the second, an added second. This is a common pop song thing to do uh, because the second is a safe note to play in a major chord that's never going to clash badly with anything else and can fill a chord out a bit. But the fact that those seconds are in there and don't clash is another reason the song sounds hyper major. So let me tell you what I'm talking about. Here's what an added second sounds like in a major chord. Nice, right? Here's what an added second sounds like in a minor chord. 3.30 in the morning, right? Very different sound. So by adding that second, it's like saying we're a million miles from sounding like the thunder rolls. So the second key feature of this song that I'd like to talk about is Diamond Rio's twangy pop, or is it poppy twang sound? That consists of two elements, twang and pop. So let's get to each of those. So the band's sound is chock full of twang. I don't know if I can define twang, but you know it when you hear it. Part of it is bending and scooping at pitches. It's kind of a country vocal hallmark, and Diamond Rio makes heavy use of it. We've talked about bending pitch a lot on this podcast. Scooping is when you kind of start at a lower pitch, then rise quickly up to the pitch that you're actually trying to sing. You hear that quite a bit in country vocals. So to me, this twang is prominent, not even in the vocals, but in Jimmy Olander's Telecaster lead guitar. Now, we've talked about how essential the Telecaster is to country music before. There's some great YouTube videos of Jimmy Olander explaining his playing technique and how he achieves these ubiquitous pitch bends that he does with a specially modified Telecaster. It's pretty cool. He moves the guitar to put tension on the straps in certain ways, and there's a mechanism there that bends the pitch when he does that. Who'd have thunk it? But he's in love with that effect. It's his thing. He just goes with it and leans into it. More than anything else, I'd argue that Jimmy Olander's twangy Telecaster, can I call it his twangacaster? How's that? More than anything else, in my opinion, Jimmy Olander's twangacaster is what defines the sound of Diamond Rio. But another twangy element is certainly Marty Rowe's lead vocals. Rowe does those country scoops as well as anyone. Some examples from the first verse, when he sings, With a smile on my face, and the feel of a kiss, and... I can feel a healing touch. With the smile on my face, 
And the feel of a kiss I can find a healing touch Each time it's up to that pitch and it's part of what makes a country song sound like a country song and Marty Rowe does it masterfully uh, and ubiquitously especially on this song. Again, Marty Rowe is not the only vocalist, and harmony is super important to the Diamond Rio sound. So while Gene Johnson's high harmony contributes a lot to the brightness of their sound, as we mentioned a moment ago, I would say that Dana Williams' low harmony vocals contribute to their twang. Williams has a natural, kind of full southern sound to his voice. And in that, he and Marty Rowe blend very well. And actually, I mean, it really is hard to differentiate between their two voices sometimes. Now this twangy sound that Diamond Rio has stands beside, blends with, and yet contrasts with some of the pop heavier elements in their sound, like Brian Prout's drumming style. I have to tell you, listening to any Diamond Rio song or album all the way through while just focusing on Brian Prout's drums is a real ear treat. I do recommend it. They're the real deal, by the way. I've seen them live a couple of times, and they are as good on stage as they are on the album. They're an excellent act, an excellent show if you get a chance to go see them. But I digress. Back to Brian Prout. I would say that Brian Prout's style is closer to pop rock than traditional country, although he's so versatile and he has so many tools in the tool chest that we want to be careful about painting with too broad of a brush. But that pop rock style is really what you hear on That's What I Get for Loving You. Prout plays a fairly heavy drum on this song with kind of a laid-back groove. Really sounds nothing like some of those driving drum parts we've talked about in Seminole Wind, for example, or the train beat of The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Sounds more like something you could pair with most top 40 of the time. I think you especially hear that in the echoing rim shots that he plays as the backbeat in the verses. Then you set me down, turn my head around. Another popular element in Diamond Rio's sound is Dan Truman's piano style. I believe Jimmy Olander said this in one of those YouTube videos that I mentioned earlier. He only did a few of those, and I guess lost steam on it, but I, I really wish he would do it again, because I couldn't get enough of hearing his thought process on some of those iconic guitar parts that he came up with. But anyway, I remember him talking about Dan Truman being a contemporary-style player. And he was talking about, for example, not playing a lot of thirds, so he is in contrast to that overall hyper-major feel of the song that we talked about earlier. I guess the best way I would describe what I hear with Dan Truman's piano style, it's a super clean piano style. So it's not raw, bluesy, jazzy. It doesn't sound like he's slapping at the keyboard in the vicinity of notes that work. Rather that he has a pinpoint touch that accents, accentuates the rest of the music in just the right spot. Truman is a cerebral type player. He's thinking about what he's doing. The best place to hear this is in the second verse where he handles most of the fills. Diamond Rio trades these between lead guitar, piano, and mandolin, but, but more on that shortly. But he handles most of the fills on that verse and also just does a lot of little accents during Marty Rowe's vocal part that are a treat to listen to, but had that contemporary pop sort of style. There was a time I walked outside the lines I The final popular element I want to point out in this song is the bridge. That's What I Get For Loving You is the first song we've covered so far that has a true bridge. You might argue that Devil Went Down to Georgia had one, but that song really didn't have a traditional form overall, so it would be a little hard to call anything out specifically as a bridge. So I'm going to say this is the first. That's What I Get For Loving You certainly does have a traditional form, being verse-chorus, verse-chorus. Then you get to a pure bridge. 
the chords that switch from that hyper major tonality to minor kind of abruptly. They're the only minor chords in the song, and that brings some drama in, as breaches commonly do. It goes to the relative minor of E, which is the key the chorus is in again. It goes to a C-sharp minor. Bridges often do that. They'll go to a chord that has a different feel from the rest of the song, or some sonic difference, whether it's a chord or whether it's a texture or an instrument. But they'll have a different feel from the rest of the song. And that'll grab attention and build some tension for the big payoff that the final chorus usually is. Bridges are pop moves, not really country moves. Traditionally, at least I think that's the case, they're pop moves. So just for fun, this song was released in 1996. I took a look at the Billboard pop chart number ones for that year, all of them, and here they are. Because I wanted to see if they did or didn't have bridges. The first is Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. You think that one's going to have a bridge? You better believe it does. One Sweet Day has a bridge that starts with Wanye going, Although the sun would never shine. Don't worry, I'm not going to try to sing like Wanye. You know you remember that, though. And naturally, by the way, the song changes keys after that bridge. Celine Dion had six weeks at number one with Because You Loved Me. I don't think Diane Warren has ever written a song without a bridge, and this one is no exception. It starts off, You Were Always There For Me, The Tender Wind That Carried Me. You know the one. Then we have another from Mariah Carey. I like this song, Always Be My Baby. I always like that song. The bridge on that one starts, I Know That You'll Be Back Boy, the Backup singers start the bridge, actually. Mariah Carey comes in right after that. The next number one that year was Bone Thugs and Harmony, The Crossroads. I think the living in a hateful world part is kind of a bridge, maybe. I think you could argue that. Let's call that half a bridge. The next was Tupac with Casey and JoJo, How Do You Want It? Not really a bridge on that song. Tony Braxton, You're Making Me High. Don't remember that song, but I listened to it just to see if it had a bridge, and it definitely has one. The bridge starts with the lyrics, I want to feel your heart and soul in front of me. The next song, you ready for it? The next number one from 1996 was Macarena by Los Del Rio. Do you know that song spent 14 weeks at number one? Wow. Coming to a 90s wedding reception near you, probably right before Endless Love, Shania Twain's From This Moment, or Tracy Bird's Keeper of the Stars. Maybe Butterfly Kisses too. Sadly, no bridge in Macarena. The next one is Black Street, no diggity, no bridge in that one either. And the final number one of 1996 was Tony Braxton again, with one I definitely remember. Unbreak My Heart. The bridge in that one comes after the classical guitar solo and starts off, Don't leave me in all this pain. Don't leave me out in the rain. I think the chorus after that is in a different key, too. Somebody check me on that. I'm not going to lie. I didn't go to the piano and check that one. So you get the idea. That's about half, 5.5 by our count out of 10. Number one songs on the U.S. pop chart that year had bridges. And no other country songs that we've covered so far had one. Until now. So that's why I say the bridge is more of a popular element in this song. So, in summary, the sound that Diamond Rio is getting is really an interesting thing. It really is pop twang or twang pop, and it's blending those two seemingly unrelated ideas and creating a sound that is unique. It's all their own. So, the final key feature I want to get to regarding That's What I Get for Loving You is the meticulousness of the way Diamond Rio executes this song. Diamond Rio is kind of a country version of Toto. Everything is deliberate. It's in its place. We mentioned earlier how the fill instruments between the vocal lines, their piano, mandolin, and lead guitar, pick their spots, and they sound deliberately placed in those spots with thoughtful licks each time that sound like they are in conversation with each other and with the rest of the songs. An excellent cohesive whole. There's a lot of flow there. The band is tight, both instrumentally and vocally. This is especially remarkable with a six-piece ensemble. 
really the kind of cheat is really a seven piece in this song because Truman plays both piano and organ and there are three vocal parts. You've really got ten voices going on there. There's a lot going on. For it to sound tightly constructed and not muddy with that many voices going on speaks to this band's skill. Because this is a good band. These guys can play. These guys can sing. They are professional musicians, studio caliber, and it is a treat to listen to them do their thing. So in preparation for this episode, I listened to this song, of course, many, many times. In ten of those iterations, I focus on exactly one of those elements. Drums, bass, acoustic guitar, mandolin, piano, organ, lead guitar, baritone vocals, tenor vocals, and lead vocals in that order to help get an appreciation for how good these guys are. And what I heard was remarkable. I heard six guys with the skills and tools to do whatever they wanted, totally playing and singing in service of the song. I'm pretty sure I'm getting this from Jimmy Olander again, but you can hear the difference between someone who is playing their guitar on the song and someone who is playing the song on their guitar. Diamond Rio plays and sings the song on their instruments and in their voices, contributing to the greater whole, and that's why they sound like the meticulous professionals that they are. The other piece of that meticulousness is what I would call a fine-tuned formula. Now, I mentioned earlier that almost everything we're saying about that's what I get for loving you could be said about Diamond Rio's broader catalog, and I think that's true. The formulaic nature of this music is itself part of the formula. And I'm using that term formulaic not necessarily as a bad thing, just meaning that it seems to follow a pattern or formula. I happen to be a big fan of that formula, so I certainly do not see it as a negative. But what exactly am I talking about here? Diamond Rio almost never breaks from these things noted above. Marty Rowe almost always sings the lead. They do have a track on their Christmas album that is an exception to that. Marty Rowe's part is almost always between Dana Williams' baritone and Gene Johnson's tenor. Mirror, Mirror on their first album is an exception to that. But other than that, that's pretty much the way it stacks up. Um, Except for like a rare banjo or the rock pop sound of their Christian album, Jimmy Olander, almost always play that hyper twangy, hyper bendy telecaster. It's so ubiquitous in their music, as we said, it pretty much defines Diamond Rio's sound, I would say more than anything else, even more than Marty Rowe's vocals. And by the time they get to That's What I Get For Loving You, which is their fourth album, the formula has certainly been tested and proven. It doesn't sound like there is a particular need or desire to stray from it. And that's maybe a lot of the reason that this song sounds so similar to Meet in the Middle. And maybe we're putting our finger on something larger here. Might 80s and 90s country music be considered formulaic, especially by the mid to late 90s when this song came out? What blend of experimentation and formula is country music at by this time, and how did they get there? How was this formula, to the extent that there is one, derived? Well, keep listening, and maybe we'll find out together. But let's recap, that's what I get for Loving You. We talked about three key features of this song. The first key feature was the brightness of the sound. There were a lot of things that made this song sound bright, but we talked about how some of the instruments did that and some of the musical elements contributed to that. And then also uh, how the vocals lent brightness to the song. Also, just the overall happy tone that the song exudes in both lyrically and musically. We talked about Diamond Rio's sound, how it was a twang pop or a pop twang blending many twangy, bendy, scoopy elements with some more typical pop elements. And finally, we talked about one more key feature, and that is the meticulous execution that Diamond Rio brings to this song and, frankly, to every song that they play. Well, that's what I get for loving you, and that's what you get for listening to this episode. 
Now let's find out what we're going to look at in our next episode of Nashville Anthems. I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s Country Station right now and find out what's playing. The song is Vince Gill, Pretty Little Adriana. Why don't you give that song a close listen or two, and I'll meet you back here in two weeks. Until then, you can write me at meltonmcmainerberry at gmail.com. You can also follow Nashville Anthems on both Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to tell a friend about us. Thanks for listening. See you next time.